Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is John Greer. John has spent nearly 20 years inquiring deeply into sacred texts and teachings of the world's traditions, spurred by his own spiritual search. He is a dedicated practitioner of meditation and has taught insight meditation for over a decade. John Greer holds a PhD in education from Pennsylvania State University, and in three decades as a professor at the University of Memphis, published numerous articles, co-authored several books on education and special education, and was a recipient of the university's highest award for distinguished teaching. He also served for two years in Nepal with the Peace Corps and has traveled extensively on six continents. He lives in, with his wife in Memphis, Tennessee. So, hello, John. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi. It's it's really nice to be here, Jacob. Uh, uh, I love uh, the, what you've put online. It's a wonderful resource for people, and uh, I think uh, apparently people are are uh, being drawn to it. So I'm honored to be invited. Thank you, John. Um, well, it's an honor to have you, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you today about mostly about the, the, the content of your book. The book is called Seeing, Knowing, Being, A Guide to Sacred Awakenings. And it really is a kind of comprehensive, very comprehensive overview of some of the main themes of the perennial philosophy, mm-hmm. um, which we're going to talk about uh, quite a bit today. So, uh, but before we get into, you know, what the perennial philosophy is, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and kind of what led you um, to the perennial teachings. Okay, um, I was uh, born in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, my parents were um, were older uh, than most of uh, my friends' parents. Uh, they were very religious. I was raised in the Presbyterian Church. Sunday was was always church, yeah. uh, and I loved it. and And that became a a very big part of of uh, of my life. And um, but when I when I uh, went to college, when I left home, when I had experiences, um, I started to have doubts about uh, some of the uh, the ideas and and uh, the the truths that I I had been told about uh, being uh, a Christian and Presbyterian and so forth. And so uh, travel was something that I always wanted to do. So the day after I graduated from high school, I crossed the country on a, on a bus, uh, stopping in different cities. And it happened that uh, on one of those trips, there are no strangers on buses. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, a student a little older than me from uh, nationalist China. Uh, Taiwan now, and uh, we talked about educa- about uh, religion, and I found that I couldn't uh, defend, I couldn't really logically uh, defend other than just saying, well, it's faith, and that really started me, and uh, that summer I, I in California, I worked with migrant children. And then I went to, uh, it was a church program, then I went to Mexico on my way home. And then the next year, I uh, did another volunteer program, I think, with the Friends Society in Puerto Rico, and building a church and community center. And then I went to South America. And I did it alone. I traveled by bus down the Pan American Highway as far as the border of Bolivia. 
And one of the things that was most formative during that trip, uh, the trip was wonderful. I loved the people. Um, but the uh, I met uh, the wives of missionaries in Quito, Ecuador, and they they took me home. I was young. I looked younger. I didn't have a beard or anything. And so they said, why don't you come home? We'll give you a good meal. And they were wonderful. And so I, I stayed with them for several days. They had children that were a little bit younger than me. And uh, then uh, one of the, the husbands came in. They were uh, with the Wycliffe Bible translators, and they broadcast from Quito. It's very high. It's, I think, nine or 10,000 feet. And one of the husbands came in and said, our supply truck is going down to the jungle. Would you like to go? And, of course, I, I took them up on that. And I went with that. I stayed in the mission hospital in Chalmera, right on the edge of the jungle. Uh, the manager of the hospital was wonderful to me also. And then he came in one day and said, we've got room on the Cessna. Would you like to fly into one of the settlements? And I did. And uh, so I had two weeks in the settlement, two different settlements in, in the, uh, the Ecuadorian Amazon, in a sense. And uh, I watched the, the, the missionaries translate the Bible into Hebrew. They had to uh, come up with uh, a language. I mean, they had to put it into written form. It wasn't, didn't exist that way. And anyway, I had these experiences, and then they gave me a letter of introduction. And three weeks later, when I got to Lima, Peru, uh, the person that ran the halfway house for uh, people uh, donating to the mission uh, effort, uh, I uh, I was able to stay there. And so I saw I saw their their operation. I had immense admiration of their, their their courage they had children in the in the jungle a jungle could be a very dangerous place but they they were intent on saved and lost and they considered individuals they figured that they had reached and converted and and others that they were trying and their devotion is unquestioned but I, I think that the natives, when they were converted, were kind of people without a country, people yeah. without a, a background, without their, they were rejected by their family. Uh, there were three uh, folks from, from uh, the jungle that uh, the woman who read in the halfway house uh, had me take to Lima because there was an American ship in, in port and see if they could do it because they had been accepted to the Navy. Mm. And I was able to do that and have a trip, I mean, a, a tour of the, the uh, minesweeper. And, but they were, they were people completely out of water, like fish out of water. And that, that was something that I could never reconcile, as wonderful as the people were to me. So that was that was fundamental. I came home. I finished my degree. Uh, I was accepted to Peace Corps, and I went to Nepal for two years. And they were two of the best years of my life. I loved it. I lived in a house made of, out of mud and stone with a thatched roof. I had a cook and his wife and two-month-old baby who lived with me. Yeah. 
Um, they were muggers. They were uh, from a, a, a sect or a, a, a tribe, really, in that area, and uh, they were wonderful. Padma, the little boy's name was Padma, and he was like my own. And while I was there, uh, there was no electricity, running water, anything like that. So I would sit under the, the uh, Milky Way. And uh, it was an amazing time for me because I had two years to really think about life and where I fit in and, and everything. And uh, the exclusivity of the, the religion I was raised in and of so many religions yeah. was totally unacceptable. I, I just, uh, the whole idea of access to heaven based on uh, a belief or, or anything like that seemed completely untenable. And so um, when I left Peace Corps, I went to Africa on the way home and traveled through uh, South Yemen and Ethiopia and, and uh, uh, Tanzania and, and uh, uh, Kenya. Uh, another great trip. I love the people I met. Again, when you travel by bus, there are no strangers because if you're alone, people will warm up very quickly. Yeah. So anyway, those experiences were absolutely fundamental. But all I had to fill in the blanks at that point was existentialism. Mm -hmm. And it's not a real upbeat view of life. <laughs> to put it lightly. <laughs> I remember uh, one of the statements that, that I read in Camus, and I think it was, the only question was whether or not to commit suicide. Yes. <laughs> so that is really what I had for uh, two and a half decades. I got married. I, I got my degree at Penn State. I came to Memphis, to the University of Memphis. I met my wife there. Um, and we have two wonderful children, and that's what I poured my life into for, uh, for years. Mm -hmm. And then in 1994, I picked up a book by Alan Watts. I forget which one. I loved Alan Watts, though, yeah. because his metaphors, his way of, of relating things was wonderful. Yeah. And I picked up a book that I'd had in college, and uh, it just... It was completely different. It, it so deeply resonated with me that I never, I never really did anything else after that. I, I uh, read prolifically, and then I had, a couple of years later, I still hadn't found a teacher. Meditation wasn't even that, that uh, common in, in Memphis. And um, I was sitting in, in, uh, out in the backyard having a glass of wine, and I, I knew in, a, in an instant that life was one, that there was only wholeness. But it was out of context in a sense. I couldn't really make sense out of it, but I knew it was important. Mm -hmm. After that, I found my teacher, uh, Matt Flickstein, who came to Memphis to do a, a weekend retreat, which I went to, and I ended up uh, studying with him for, for uh, 20 years. Mm. He's wow. a wonderful teacher. He lives in Virginia, and um, 
I poured my, myself into uh, my practice and into uh, reading. I read everything I could find. Mm -hmm. And then Matt said, I, one thing that I did, I guess because I was inspired by Alan Watts, is I collected metaphors. Yes. And I collected metaphors, but I didn't have a framework to put them in. So I, I listed them and different categories and there there's so many really wonderful metaphors that are that are available yeah and my uh, matt thought it was really a, a good idea and he actually took it to wisdom mm -hmm. publishers uh and they didn't they didn't publish it they had published his stuff but uh, they didn't see that it was ready for anything like that and so i was uh, you know, disappointed. I put it on the shelf, but I came back, got it published, and it was because of Matt's encouragement that, that I was able to do that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, now it's uh, my life. Uh, I have, have had openings. Uh, I see life from a non-dual perspective, um, and it is uh, liberating. There, there, there's a poignance to it too, because it's not the same old. Mm -hmm. It's not, you're not what you used to think you were. And um, so it's, it's liberating, it's, it's thrilling. It was, um, anyway, that's where I am. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I really appreciate hearing that really um, wonderful account of your life and the adventures that you've went through. And I love the the role that travel has played in your own um, uh, adventure. And I want to talk a little bit about that again in a moment, but um, you know, I just want to touch on what you started mentioning regarding the metaphors and the images, because to me, that was really, <clears throat> it's one of the things that I really like about your book. And it's obviously very intentional for a kind of pedagogical reason. Um, mm -hmm. and, and just for those that haven't read the book yet, who are listening, um, each one of John's chapters, he, he, you know, unpacks the, the theme and then about three quarters of the way into the chapter, there will be a, um, a portion that is devoted to images and metaphors. So I'm looking at one right now, um, mirror, flat earth and, um, uh, hole in the cheese. And, and, and then there's about a paragraph or two where, um, he unpacks these metaphors as a way of illustrating the theme that he's exploring in the chapter. And it's really, it's a really beautiful, and like you say, it, there is something very Alan Watts about it. You feel like you've heard him sort of mention the, uh, a couple of these or, or something like these in, in many of his lectures, um, which are my favorite. I, I'm sure you've listened to them. Uh, I had a period in my life where all I did was really listen to those Alan Watts lectures. <laughs> they're really, they're incredibly impressive. inspiring. He's such an amazing orator as well. Um, so, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, the, the pedagogical role of, of image and metaphor um, and why that kind of way of approaching these concepts or these themes is, is important on the spiritual path? Okay. Um, really, it's it's hard to put into words some of the the uh, ideas in in non-duality. Yeah. Uh, you know, you are and you aren't. How do you really make sense out of saying to someone, "Well, you do exist, but you don't exist." Um, 
And so it's it, metaphors. We, we can tell somebody what something is like, even if we can't tell them exactly what it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so the, the idea of wholeness um, and yet separation. How can there be an individual in a non-dual world where there are no parts? And uh, I love the wave in the ocean. Yeah. You know, the wave is separate, it has dimensions, it might have a white crest uh, and so forth, and yet it's always the ocean. Yeah. And people can get their head, they can get their mind around that. Where they can't get it around um, the, the, just the uh, indescribable uh, thing that, that non-duality is. And... Uh, I have used those metaphors uh, so many times, and, and I love them. You, you mentioned hole in the cheese. I love that one. Do you want to share what that one is? Well, with hole, actually, that was from a, a play, I think, by uh, Brecht, uh, the German playwright. And it, it was something about hole in the cheese. And, and uh, it, it's the idea of like with uh, Vipassana or, or things like that, you look at the different components of the self and you see that thoughts aren't your own. Mm -hmm. you, see, you, you see all the different components of the self and yet there is no self, they're just components. Mm -hmm. And the awareness, there's, there's consciousness, but the awareness that's, that's taking this in um, finds nothing. And with cheese, if you have a hole in the cheese and you eat the cheese slowly and you eliminate the cheese, there's not, the hole is nothing. Yeah. It's a concept of something that in a sense only exists relatively. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's my view of, of, Humanity. That's my view of of myself. We exist. We do things. Uh, we have histories, uh, but and concepts play such a massive role in this. Like um, with with uh, time. If you have a memory of something you did last year, and then you have you're doing something right now then it seems to argue very strongly for the existence of somebody that was there then and is still there now. Mm -hmm. And in life, we have memories and stories that, you know, illustrate that in a sense, back as far as we can remember. Well, with, with the memory, there's, there's memory and there are the, the different episodes, but the entity that supposedly is seeing these things, participating in these things, it's not an entity. It's just life. Mm -hmm. And the things exist, the memories exist, but the, the person that has those memories is changing constantly. Mm -hmm. It's like a river. We, we are constantly changing. Um, so it's that idea. Yeah. 
Okay, John, so I had a question about, you know, education, because I know that you spent many years teaching um, in education. And so I was curious, as I was reading your bio earlier, what your thoughts were kind of on the status or the, 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 the position of education in this country from the perspective of your, you know, your perennial position or the position of this book? Like, do you have any reflections on the state of education, um, you know, given what I feel like you and I both see as the importance of this kind of these wisdom teachings? It's it's a great question and and uh, one that uh, I don't have a, you know, I think uh, a lot falls through the cracks. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, there's so much emphasis on um the 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 basic skills of getting a job yeah and there is very little that develops the the person and the wholeness of a person art for example music i was very lucky when i was growing up in delaware um art was a uh a you know a, a big part of it and and so was music i was in the the choir and and the band and, and those types of things are very important. Uh, a lot of the uh, the experiences that children have today uh, are devoid of of anything like that, uh, unless it's uh, something that that um, points to the exclusivity of of religion that that I I really am uh, opposed to. Yeah. I so I I think uh, I wouldn't give it a very good grade. I, I think uh, most of the places that uh, I'm familiar with, um, there's an absence of of anything that really, you know. I think of of uh, <clears throat> the Dead Poets Society. I don't know if you ever saw that movie, yeah, but yeah. it was you know it's a beautiful movie. And when when Children are are drawn into uh, fascinating things that really make them think and and uh, kindles their imagination. I think that's the best future for our country and for for uh, the kids that are involved. And I don't see that today. It's it's uh, very much occupationally oriented, and that's important for everybody to get a job, but. There's an awful lot that the majority of children don't have access to. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm thinking also specifically of contemplative practice. You know, if it's if it is practiced at all, it would it would uh, I, I I'm thinking specifically actually of my teacher who left academia because he felt like, you know, the most important thing was to kind of impart these practices where these kind this kind of wisdom could spontaneously arise but you know it's sort of it's considered imparting a religion on someone to you know train them in meditative techniques and it also kind of reminds me what you're saying reminds me of a conversation I was having with Stephen Porges the scientist who developed polyvagal theory and he was remarking on how you know the universities are are not places of safety um and, and so you, we expect kind of innovation and creativity to arise, um, but it can't when there's this kind of sense of competitiveness and fear that is really built into the very structure of the system. 
I agree completely. And um, it's, uh, I don't really know what the answer is, uh, but um, it's so, working with children and uh, young people, we have four grandchildren of all boys and they're, they're nine and younger and they're right at my level. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's just uh, listen, watching them develop, watching them have questions and, and become perceptive about things uh, in life and so forth. It's, it's a joy to, to be around children. And um, that's, uh, that's a very important thing, and and it's it's falling through the cracks a lot of times. Interestingly, one of the main reasons that I wrote the book was I started off writing it for for my uh, for our son and daughter. Oh. Wanted them to know where I was uh, that in that sense, and uh, that's what I started writing it for, and because I I. I didn't know how else to give it to them. They were they were younger at that time. They're they're uh, uh, you know they they've both read the book now and and then it just goes from there. However, but uh, it's it's so important and education is so important and um, it's missing a lot of the the key ingredients. Uh, it's. It's too bad in Nepal. Nepal, I was there in, from '67 to '69, and wow. uh, a very, very, you know, impoverished area. One of the things I always loved in Nepal was the Namaste. Mm -hmm. And when I would come out, you know, of of the house, a lot of times the kids would hang around just to watch me brush my teeth. <laughs> they had never seen. You know that, and uh, but bowing to them, and and saying Namaste. You did that on the the trails, and you're 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 bowing to the light within them, mm -hmm. and they're bowing to the light within you, and and that is such a beautiful thing that uh, that the children the children get. I, you know, there's still problems there in in terms of of religion, but. I mean, my cook kind of hedged his bets. He he had, he he uh, respected you know all the different uh, parts of of religion there. There was the Hinduism and there was Buddhism and there was the shaman and the yeah. in the village and all that. So, but that's why I started writing the book, and uh, it just went from one thing to another. And uh, have you have you been happy with how your family received it, or with how your son and daughter received it? I I have I you know it's it's such an ind individual thing, of course. And yeah. so there was I I didn't want to proselytize myself, right? Yeah. And so it's just an offering. Mm -hmm. And and how it unfolds in their lives, that that life will determine that. Yeah. But uh, they were they both read the book and they're they're wonderful, you know, people and uh, they're raising their own children now and you know it's it's just a miracle to watch. Yeah, and hopefully generation after generation will get to read that book. That's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly a blessing for a family to have. 
Um, so I want to now, we've been talking a little bit around kind of the perennial philosophy and many people will be familiar with that term, but I wanted to just ask you, you know, very, very straightforwardly, what is the perennial philosophy? Okay. I, you know, I, I was looking when I, when I started really seriously getting into the, the book, I was looking for things that were, um, that weren't, uh, you know, proselytizing, that weren't coming from a particular angle, that were all inclusive. And William James, uh, the varieties of, of uh, religious experience, mm -hmm. um, uh, Joseph uh, Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces, I love that, that yeah. whole idea. And then Aldous Huxley and the perennial philosophy. And I loved all those books. Uh, the perennial philosophy kind of tied it, tied it all together with the idea that um, the, the thing that's missing or the reason we, we don't see reality as we might is that uh, it's the way we look at it yeah. and the way we see reality. And that way of seeing it is really conceptualization. Mm -hmm. And when um, that that really kind of lit my fire, and and um, you know the, the the idea of everything is is becoming increasingly conceptualized, like the the doctor. Uh, when I was a kid, the doctor came to the house with a bag, you know, would mm -hmm. give you take temperature and so forth. The specialization in medicine alone. Is is incredible, and uh, and that that is logical as we pursue knowledge and and understanding of the human body and and so forth. And it's happened in everything. So we have this proliferation of concepts of parts. Yeah. We can we consistently divide life into more and more smaller and smaller, more specific parts. And because of that, it's very hard to see wholeness. And so Aldous Huxley was, was you know, focused on an idea that, that wasn't his originally, uh, but one that, that is looking for wholeness in, in the midst of multiplicity. Yeah. And uh, and I loved it, and uh, so it's really uh, and and Joseph Campbell does the very much the same thing. He he does it, uh, it the the myths of of humanity uh, have the idea of the hero, and of the the division of a, an original. Like in Polynesia, I, I don't know what the name of it is, the, the, uh, the original uh, being that's cut into countless pieces. Yeah, you have that and, in Hinduism as well. Yes, and, and the meaning or, or the, the idea is that the pieces, uh, they're playing hide and seek. There is life. But life can't see itself. From oneness, it's like being close to something. You, if you're too close, you can't you can't focus. Mm -hmm. Alan Watts said, uh, or or it was Ken Wilbur. I listened to the Ken Wilbur interview that you had. Um, 
uh, he was asked why, uh, you know, uh, why are things the way the way they are? And he said, God doesn't like eating alone. <laughs> and it's you have to have you have to have separation to see what life is. Alan Watts related it to the nerves in the body that every human being or everything alive is reporting back to life the whole as to what what it's like it's it's that type thing well yeah. with the perennial philosophy where people are lost because of the multiplicity and the and we learn to see through concepts and it's very hard to see without them mm -hmm. but that's the return and um, meditation and, and uh, seeing that thoughts are on our own. When I saw that, uh, that was a game, that was a, a big thing because thoughts are what precede actions and so forth. So he was talking about the reason why we don't see wholeness and that there is wholeness and that there is uh, the possibility of returning to it. Yeah. And that is repeated uh, in, in many ways uh, around the world, ultimately. Mm. So, you know, I understand that you practice, um, you practice, you do a particular, is it in, insight practice, insight meditation? Yes. So I'm, I'm curious just from your own perspective, why, um, because you, you sort of zoom out and talk about the kind of perennial philosophy. And then when you, in the practice section, you're, you're talking about many different practices. And so I'm curious why you felt inspired to do that rather than teach specifically insight meditation or just speak about one practice. You know, uh, when, when I started there, there weren't even that many books on on this subject. Right. And uh, when I met Matt, uh, he 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 was trained by Bhante Gunarantana, uh, is in Theravadan Buddhism, yeah. and uh, it just related to me. He he wasn't um, you know it was completely open. It was he, there wasn't any any choice of or or attempt to proselytize or to get people to believe that way. Yeah, uh, he didn't even have the trappings of it. He was just uh, you know uh, I mean he he didn't wear a robe or 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 do anything like that. And I was drawn to that and. Um, I see it, and he has since moved to non-duality. And Bonte, he has great stories of working with Bonte. He helped Bonte start the Bhavana Society in West Virginia. And Bonte uh, was from Sri Lanka. He's a monk in, in Sri Lanka, and um, he's considered a living, a living um, you know, saint by the, the Sri Lankans. But um, with the family, the thing about uh, Vipassana was that it, it didn't necessitate um, a belief system. Right. And so it was a tool. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was clean that way. It, it, it was a tool that 
um, you know, helped you be present, helped you um, see things differently when the mind begins to calm down. It helps you see how crazy the mind is. I mean, the mind is, is you know, the, the Buddhist uh, metaphor for that is, is monkeys swinging from, from tree to tree, I believe. And, and it's funny, in Nepal, when I would hike to different villages— they did that. There were monkeys up in the in the trees, and you could hear them coming. And then they'd throw stuff down, you know, <laughs> when they'd pass us and and keep going. So I like the fact that it was a tool. And there are many tools, and I'm not saying it was the best tool or the, the but it it was a very good tool, and it was the tool that that um, the Buddha uh, recommended, and uh, and that was that was important too yeah so let's talk a little bit about now the specific some of the specific chapters of the book and each chapter is given a great very simple title um and it's sort of uh, many of the concepts or ideas that you encounter along the way in 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 different traditions um and the book itself is split between two parts the first one is the exile and the second one, the second part is the return. So uh, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the exile and the return? Yes, yes. Um, the exile is when we are taught, I mean, from the time we're born, uh, our parents give us a name. They start pointing things out to what this is and what that is, and this is mom and this is dad and so forth. And that process goes on through elementary school and high school and college as far as you go. And life is, the, is a teacher and, and everything that happens in you. But everything is based on you being separate. Uh, when the child is born, they aren't separate. They don't have any concepts. They don't have any. And, and watching a baby explore its environment is is a fascinating thing and a, a joyous thing but society teaches an individual teaches that that human being to be an individual and we carry the identification of every sort we have a license and a and a, a passport and all the different things that identify who we are and that's the exile and the, the more you feel your separateness and the more you feel your, you, you have your story, everybody has their story. And uh, if you go to a party, the first thing people ask was, well, where do you work? And it's that story. And uh, so seeing the, the connection, seeing the oneness is, is almost impossible. Yeah. And with that comes pain. And, and uh, we, we feel lost. We feel uh, at odds with, with life. We don't know where we fit in. Uh, a metaphor that I love is we feel like a page torn out of a novel. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you make sense out of a single page? And so at that point, there is the good thing about pain and, and suffering is that it it's an impetus 
to look, to search for a way out, to search for, a, for an answer. And that's where the return comes in. And if a person finds um, a, a way to undo, to unlearn some of those things, they're necessary to get along in society, but they aren't exactly what we, they aren't what we are. Mm -hmm. They're the story. And to strip those things away, it's a little bit like antique furniture. We've got, by the time we get to, to 20 or 25 or 30, we've got several coats of thick paint that hide us from what's real. And, you know, it's like stripping that paint off. You gradually start to realize that there is something much greater that you really are. And uh, insights give us glimpses of that. And, uh, and that's what the return is. And it's difficult and it's scary because... Excuse me, it because you start to see that the self you think you are is not not real. And that's terrifying. And actually, for a lot of people who who in, get involved with this, that's that's too much. Yeah. And they they pull away and they don't continue. Yes. Uh, but if if that happens, uh, if that that barrier is penetrated, then um, the, one starts to see the light and the, the connection with the rest of life. Yeah. And one of the most beautiful things uh, with this, Jacob, is the wonder that comes. The, the wonder for, um, I've always loved nature. Mm-hmm. And we we spend quite a bit of time at the beach and taking a chair down to the edge of the water at night, even in the winter, there's something just wonderful about that or getting up early in the morning to see a sunrise or uh, watching pelicans fly in formation and, and the, all of those things and little things, just the 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 leaves on the forest floor and the design, the 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 desiccated leaves as they, they break up and the twigs. And uh, I love photography. And so I take pictures of, of little things, big things, and then write haiku that kind of relate that to uh, non-duality. Yeah. And I, I enjoy that a great deal. But the, the wonder of just watching a child, a baby, is it's miraculous yeah i love that you're mentioning wonder because i've always preferred you know i feel like sometimes when when we talk about this process of awakening um often the beginning of the process in in certain accounts is sort of dukkha or suffering and and i've always um preferred kind of to think that wonder is sort of the starting place because the if we're if if suffering is the starting place there's something kind of escapist it seems like about the nature of the process, whereas wonder provokes a kind of or incites a sort of uh, desire to become one with that which one feels wonder about. Yes. In fact, there, you know, there are times when you, you are no longer there, you know, where you're so stunned 
by uh, the beauty that there's no sense of, of self. Of course, that, that happens to a lot of things, like uh, the zone in sports mm-hmm. is a great metaphor. Yeah, yeah. Because if you don't think, if you're not reflecting on what you're doing, you do a lot better. Yeah. I, I love the, I, I play at blues harp. And, you know, just the harmonica. And it, I'm not I'm not good. I don't play enough and everything. But I have friends that when they get going, they're not there anymore. Yeah. It's just life. Yeah. Life, just just playing. Uh, it's it's a wonderful thing. And, and it happens in, in sports all the time. It happens in music. It happens in, in anything, gardening, art, uh, whatever where the mind just steps aside mm-hmm. and lets the flow of life do its thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, that is a joy. And, uh, you know, the answers, getting to the, the wonder point, there are no answers. We can't figure it out. There's no way you can explain exactly what this is and exactly what that is. But it's the... It's the unknowing magnificence of it all. Yeah. Just the the breathtaking um, experience of being alive. Yeah, I like this um, uh, what you're talking about because it reminds me of you know a lot of times as academics look for the authorship. When we go back into certain you know ancient traditions, I'm I know better the Vedic one because it's sort of mostly what I study, but there's so much, you know, question of authorship, and often you see the same um, name like Vyas or Patanjali, you know, writing so many different things, and 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 the confusion around whether or not this is the same person. And it seems it's a particularly, you know, contemporary concern to mm-hmm. like staple a specific authorship on something. Whereas it seems like, you know, if you just look to the the wisdom of those traditions, I mean, they're essentially saying that there is no authorship in that kind of you know, pure, purely individuated sense, like you're saying. And, um, and, and, and that really seems to be kind of, you know, one of the, these wisdom insights is that these, these texts, these spiritual, you know, teachings are things that kind of emerge like waves on that ocean of consciousness rather than, you know, being sort of, um, easily sourced in a particular socio-historical context by an individual, um, in a certain setting, even though that might be interesting from a certain historical perspective, but not yeah. necessarily from this more perennial one. I, I think one of the, the most fundamental things is everything does everything. We're not the doer. And uh, that's uh, liberating in, in many ways when you uh, we're so apt to judge ourselves for something that happened or whatever. And we're even more apt to take credit for this or take credit for that. But I had an experience that a, a lot of people have had uh, where I'd write something and read it the next day and be yeah. amazed that that uh, what was on the paper. And uh, and it, it's when when that is seen, there really is a, a freedom uh, from judgment. Uh, I still, you know, we all still judge ourselves and what went well and what didn't and so forth. But. Um, I guess it, it, it really boils down to wonder for me. It just, uh, the magic of, of, uh, of life, 
the the beauty, the extraordinary beauty of life, uh, the the pain, the suffering, the the all the terrible things in life. Uh, it's it's necessary for duality. I guess we don't we don't know uh, hot without cold, and we don't know good without bad, and and it's it's necessary for the way things are are set up, but. Uh, the wonder and beauty and love of life is uh, is really breathtaking. Mm-hmm. I, I liked what you were saying about um, you know you're describing kind of as we were children and and we are encouraged socially into this process of individuation and it's not that it's bad right because if you didn't have that individuating process you would be kind of a completely codependent creature on your parents' right. whole life. So there is this sense in which it's a necessary kind of external mm-hmm. into the world kind of process, but then we get lost there, right? I mean, that's really where our culture is sort of, has sort of forgotten this process, that there is a kind of, like you say in the book, there's a return. Like we get the exile, but then we're lost in that exile. We, we don't even, we, we forget that the, the true independence really is the independence that has Remerged with the absolute after that individuating process is complete. Yes, that's that's uh, it's true. You you really do need all those. I mean, we need a license. We have to, you know, <laughs> all all those things that that we need, uh, and that's tricky because how how I mean, it seems so counterintuitive to people when uh, they hear for the first time or read for the first time that they don't exist, at least the way they think they do. Uh, But uh, both things are necessary. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it goes back to you are, but you aren't, or you are, you, you are, but not what you think you are, that type thing. It's, it's hard. It's, it's so uh, paradoxical. Um, but it's it's wonderful too when when uh, when you you do have that self concept and things aren't going well if if there's realization that that you aren't what you think you are it's a little bit like playing Monopoly yeah you know you're losing you're everybody's beating you done the wrong things and everything and then suddenly you think it's a game. And it's there's the relief. I mean, it's a, a minor example, but when you realize that it's just life, there is uh, the willingness to to let it roll, mm-hmm. to get out of your own way, mm-hmm. to um, you know, to to open up to the possibility of pain or or suffering, but to to be life. Uh, it's uh, it's a wonderful thing. So, but we need it. We we need that that uh, that training. So I want to ask you a question that I ask I ask a lot, sort of in these types of um, discussions. Which you know, because most of the time, those who appeal to this kind of wisdom also happen to be people who fall on the left side of things politically. Mm-hmm. And there is a kind of um, seeming paradox, I think, sometimes between the 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 wisdom teaching of the no self, right, or or that we are not what we think we are, and the kind of 
um, political objectives of recognizing certain minorities, for example. So I'm a member of the LGBT community. There's a certain kind of, you know, um, systems of oppression that are in place. Obviously, we have um, issues with African Americans as well, and other and other uh, uh, ethnic minorities in this country. That that where where there's a there's a particular need for certain kinds of recognition of individuation in order to be um, in order to be equal. So how do we from from the what is the wisdom what is the wisdom perspective? Um, the perennial wisdom perspective offer to that kind of understanding without just saying, oh, well, you know, your suffering as a, as a minority is, is just a part of your own kind of individual illusion. Well, I, I think uh, the, the, the main idea is, is there is only one, you know, we're all, we're all one. So uh, the distinctions are, are conceptual. That's the way we, we see through that, that uh, it's like uh, the map and the territory. Yeah. The map, uh, you know, shows different turns and parts and so forth, but the territory is one. And um, I think uh, as we understand, as we, I, I think with with this approach to life, I think we, there's, there's, a, the, the self is, is put into context. And the actions of, of individuals uh, are seen as the actions of life. And we're not the doer. And the choices that we make are based on everything that's happened to us. And seeing that, there's, there's, uh, the boundaries come down, the, the, the walls come down. Uh, I, I guess in Joseph Campbell, uh, the the wall around Eden was conceptual, yeah, and it's the the words, the terms that that identify us, that categorize us. Um, but when when those those walls are are uh, taken down, uh, there is life whole, and um, it's sad, like with religious differences, the the things that have happened. Um, because my, my experience in, in, uh, Islamic countries in Ethiopia, and I, I wasn't in South Yemen long, but, um, people are people. And I think that, uh, they were open and friendly and wonderful, you know, they're very hospitable. Um, and the, the differences are minor compared to the whole compared to uh, what we truly are. Um, so I see us as actors in a play. And uh, we read different roles, but we didn't write the script. Mm-hmm. None of us did. The people that we disagree with, the people that we think are doing harm and so forth, they didn't write the script either. Life is the doer. Life lets the... the um, you know, the, the, the story unfold. Uh, when we see that, we, we take everything with a grain of salt. And it, the times, recent times, have been um, very frustrating. Uh, the, the news is, is difficult to, to read uh, or to, to listen to. But it helps to know that in the end, 
it's all story mm -hmm. and it's not what's real. Um, so I, I don't know if that really answers your question. There isn't a, there isn't a, uh, there isn't an easy answer. I know the for sure, because, uh, but I, I guess my follow-up question would be then, you know, if there is, if we're not the doer, then what do we do <laughs> about, um, you know, social justice or equality, or if, you know, if I'm not the doer, how does that not just completely debilitate me in the face of injustice? Um, I, I think we, we, uh, we follow the conditioning, we, we follow the, the mandate of what we are. And um, we're trained by our parents, we are uh, influenced by our society. Uh, that's, the, that's, that's the story of life. Uh, we, we do our best. Uh, but I think that understanding it in, in terms of not being the doer um, frees us to really follow our own heart. Uh, I, I think um, when, we, when we understand wholeness and what we truly are, uh, then the differences that conditioning tells us exist uh, don't exist that way. So um, it, it's certainly possible that somebody who has a superficial understanding of this teaching uh, could use it to, you know, do anything they want. Well, I'm not the doer and everything. And that that is, um, I'm sure, happens. But it's liberating when you see it at a deeper level. And when you see it at a deeper level, then I think the oneness with each other uh, is is the main thing. We we see that uh, there are different different choices that we all make, uh, but we're one. And um, there's no re no easy answer to it. Um, well, you say something in the non-doing chapter, you quote Watts, and I, I really liked this because um, I feel like it speaks to this question. Um, you say Watt, Watts introduced this Taoist fundamental to the West, um, speaking about non-doing, um, 40 years ago and stressed the distinction between non-doing and inertia, laziness, laissez-faire, or mere passivity, right? So the idea being that, that non-doing is not just you know, not doing anything. <laughs> right. and, the, and the key, Lee, the key, this is continuing what you're writing, the key lies in the construct of the doer. In non-doing, no doer is conceived of except life itself. So this issue is moot. In inertia, laziness, and laissez-faire, the self considered responsible for the necessary actions fails to act. Um, so the idea that, you know, um, if by, by inhabiting a spirit of non-doing, it's not that nothing's happening. It's just that you're getting out of the way of a process that perhaps would move more efficiently towards healing the situation of life, right? Or the situ the political situation rather than if you were trying to meddle with it. Um, so it's, it's about really getting out of your own way in a sense. Yes, it is. Uh, again, like the zone in sports, um, you know, if you think about what you're doing, 
um, you're caught, you're, you, you uh, don't make the shot or, or whatever. I think um, in life, I think knowing, knowing the wholeness, knowing the oneness that underlies everything, uh, the connection between each other is strengthened, where you see that uh, we're, we're wearing different costumes, we, we act in different ways, we believe different things, but that is the, that is the play, that is the act, acting, but the actors are life, and, and that's the oneness. So I, I think I understand completely what you're saying, uh, and I, I think that uh, something like this could easily be a justification for, uh, you know, uh, behaviors that are very, uh, very inappropriate. But I think it, the wholeness underlying everything else um, connects us in ways that, that didn't, we didn't have before. Right. The way, we, the way you know, it, it has been traditionally, there are tremendous differences and tremendous problems. And I think if people knew, if they really knew that there is oneness underneath and that there was no division, that we are all connected in, in profound ways, um, then the, the conflicts that we see every day would be, uh, would be minimized. Mm -hmm. In a way, I guess, Jacob, uh, the, the story is, is the education. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the design of life to have differences, to have crises, to have conflicts. Uh, as different, as difficult and, and painful as they are, uh, we know the horrible things that have happened in, in history. Uh, we also know the wonderful things that have happened. Uh, but it's a little bit like watching a movie uh, and then walking out. We're lost in the movie. We cry. We laugh. We, we are completely uh, taken by, by the story. And then it ends when we walk out to the parking lot and realize what's real. And we, we see terrible things. We see uh, cruelty and, and unfairness and so forth. But I think we can see the whole without neglecting our responsibilities as an individual. Right. It, it's, it's both. We are and we aren't. Yeah. And uh, as, as paradoxical as that is, I have found it um, easier to, to see it both ways to, yeah. and, and magical. And, and that, that's the, the wonder of it all. Yeah. So you mentioned in your book um, that Meister Eckhart uh, says that man's last and highest parting is when, for God's sake, he takes leave of God. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about God from the perennial perspective, because I like that you mention that um, both atheism and a kind of dogmatic idea of God both sort of go too far in opposite directions. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, they're, they're concepts. Yeah. And uh, again, concepts divide. If you have uh, uh, an atheist, you have a believer. 
you right. have, you know, it, it's, those are concepts. And um, I see uh, what Eckert was saying. I, he's really good. Some of his sermons, yeah. you know, way back are, are very good. And, and it's a wonder he wasn't crucified for it. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. You know, there weren't many that, that made it through the West uh, with, with ideas like that. But uh, I, I think there, there's a, a difference that uh, is important. I think the, the exoteric and the esoteric uh, are, are relevant here. The exoteric things are very concrete, and that's actually where most people are. Yeah. And they have right and everything is is dualistic. Everything is uh, this way or that way, and there's not much in between. And the esoteric uh, is is the non-dual. Everybody doesn't have the luxury of of you know going the esoteric way. It 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 takes time. Uh, retreats, uh, the tremendous, uh, effort. Uh, I, I read so many books and spent so much time on it. And most people don't have that much time. Yeah. They're so busy. We're so, so I, I see that that's very important how we believe and what we believe. And, and, um, I think there is a, a place for that. And it's the way life unfolds. It's it's the way the story unfolds. Yeah. And uh, so there's no uh, what we do is is part of the story. The the terrible things that happen, um, you it would be terrible. It would be ironic if something as peaceful as as non-duality and as wholesome as non-duality. Uh, liberated a person in a sense to do wrong, uh, that's certainly not a desired outcome. But I, I see it as the design of life. And um, we need what we need at different stages in life. And um, I don't know if I've answered your question or no, not. No, you have, yeah. Um, well, I, and, and so I guess one of the, this is sort of my last question that I have, this has been a really interesting conversation and, and, um, and I think this topic is so important for people to hear and the way, and especially the ways of, you know, I, and one thing I, I really appreciate about your book is the, the way in which it encourages those that may have, like you and I, been raised in Christian traditions, which tends to, you know, at least in most uh, incarnations of Christianity today uh, is a very rigid kind of dogmatic idea, and there really is an esoteric um, component to uh, the Christian tradition that is very comforting for those of us who mm -hmm. who were raised with that kind of rigidity. Um, but you know, one of the things that you mention towards the end of your book, which I really appreciated, is you you bring up the question of verifiability. Um, you know, if knowledge is based on, this is your quote, if knowledge is based on others' testimony alone, uh, if knowledge based on others' testimony alone cannot be proved or disproved, right, this is sort of the question from those who would, um, you know, be on the side of science or scientific um, verifiability, how can we distinguish it from dogma or the sort of unsubstantiated claims we sometimes encounter in the popular spiritual literature? So I guess it's a question of, you know, 
and the, you hear this a lot. It's like if the, the gurus or the sages are all talking about this incredible experience, I've never had it. It seems very inaccessible to me. How am I to know or how if I can't access that verifiability that I can access through, you know, at least theoretically being able to execute the same kind of scientific um, practices to get there, then 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 where am I to where do I how, what what do I stand on basically? Well, that's uh, I, I think most traditions have some form of. Uh, verifying a person's uh, position, understanding them, whether it's, uh, you know, all the different uh, religious traditions typically have something that, that is, is used. Um, it's not foolproof, and there are a lot of people that make claims that, that, uh, that aren't real. Um, I, I don't know if, I, I think most of the people that, that follow a, a tradition um, are, are tested in some way, yeah. uh, things are, are looked at by others who have done that path, but it's not, it's not, uh, foolproof and, uh, in every aspect of life, the same thing happens. Uh, it's uh, the, the things that a, a person does and the things that a person says, uh, they can be profoundly different. And um, I guess it's just the system that we're in, the life that we're in. It's, it's part of the story. Um, it's not flawless, um, but it's, it's worth the, the effort to, um, to get into it if a person has the time. Um, but there's no foolproof system. There, there you know, in... in um, in all the traditions, there are typically uh, ways of, of testing the understanding of an individual, uh, but it's not foolproof, and, and I know exactly what you're talking about, and um, I wish to add an answer for that, but, but I really don't. Well, it seems like it, the part of the answer is what, you're, what I do hear you saying in terms of an answer is that there's, there's work to be done, and there are methods you can, you know, employ, um, rather than just taking someone's word for it. Even like when you were talking about your own practice, you know, your insight meditation practice, it didn't require a belief system. It just required you to actually do the experiment of, of practice, you know, and, and, um, and to find that truth, you know, in yourself for yourself. I think actually, um, people that don't practice at all, have openings. Yeah. Uh, it it's it's kind of on the schedule of life, right? And it's not it's great. Uh, there's yeah. not. That's right. There's not. It's not a credit thing. Yeah. Uh, people can work all <laughs> Too <lives>. bad. <laughs> people can work all their lives and 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 not have anything. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just it. Uh, we just we're reading a script that uh, we didn't write. I see it that way, and uh, but the uh, the wonder and the love that are associated with it are are um, are hard to. Um, I mean, they're they're wonderful, and um, 
I think everything that you're doing with, with the program is wonderful. I think making access to it, there is certainly more discussion uh, worldwide, I think that the internet has has played a big role in this. Mm -hmm. the, the access to the literature of the different traditions uh, wasn't very common. Most of what uh, William James has in his book are are still limited to Christianity and Judaism, and yeah. and uh, it's the the richness, the the uh, the cross fertilization. A lot of the metaphors that I use in the book are from other other traditions, and and uh, you know Rumi, I love Rumi, and uh, there there's so many rich things, and um, things fall through the cracks, and life has always been that way, and uh, wish we could uh, perfect it, but but uh, again, it's. It's a design uh, that that we really didn't produce. Yeah. So, are there any final thoughts, uh, John, that you'd like to share based on what we're talking about? Um, any kind of blind spots you think that we should have touched on? I I really can't think of anything. You really have a very uh, broad uh, offering. It's it's uh, quite quite remarkable. Um, the the teacher. I mean the. The courses that are offered, and the podcasts, and the the Tarka articles, and the, I mean, it's it's remarkable. You've to think you've done this in in the amount of time that you've you've put into it uh, uh, is is really uh, kudos to you. It's it's wonderful what you've done, and I am I am privileged to uh, to play this this small part in it, and and uh, I really do appreciate the. The invite. It's all. It's always nice to to uh, to talk about this and yeah. to share it because the, there's still a lot of people that have no awareness of it, and yes. uh, yeah. so it's it's nice to to do that. Absolutely. Well, I, f I feel like your your book is a really excellent, probably more so than any other introduction to perennial philosophy because. Just because you bring in so many of the kind of luminaries, you talk about Alan Watts, you you discuss, you know, Sharon Salzberg is in there, um, Jung. I mean, you really go, you really do kind of introduce almost, you could say, a canon of figures that we might say are part of this sort of, you know, this tradition of perennial teachings that, of course, is, you know, the tradition of traditions in a certain sense. And so it's it's a great book, and I and I plan on you know giving it as a gift to people who I think are right at that you know that juncture where they're ready to kind of explore these teachings. And so thank you for writing it, um, and thank you also for your affirmative words about embodied philosophy. I appreciate that. So John, are there are there any ways for people to get a hold of you? I know you have a website, which is, if I'm correct, it's the title of your book. Yes. Yes seeingknowingbeing.com is that right yes i uh i must say uh that that uh, i haven't been uh, keeping that up as as actively as i should maybe maybe after this now i'll i'll run back and and uh put some new sp uh, things on it i i've always been been open to uh, interacting with people i like to do that uh, I have a small group uh, that that is interested in in non-duality here in Memphis, uh, but uh, it's it's 
it's a joy to share yeah. uh, something that that is so transformative, and um, and I'm always learning from from the process and seeing new insights and and new ways to explain it. And yeah. uh, and your your efforts are are remarkable, and so I'm I'm really glad uh, that I see that. I also uh, have a Twitter. Uh, account and and I make uh, small uh, you know tweets uh, on that. Uh, I've done that ever since the the book came out. Excellent. But, so uh, so yeah, yeah, so I'm I would encourage everyone out there listening who is in the Memphis area to to try to get a, um, in touch with John. Maybe you can join that non-duality group, which <laughs> sounds amazing. Um, and uh, and also do you know get his book. Uh, seeing, knowing, being a guide to sacred awakenings. Um, and uh, yes, John, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. And thank you so much for sharing your time. The pleasure is mutual, Jacob. It's really nice to meet you. And uh, uh, I will uh, follow your efforts uh, with great interest. <laughs>